HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Cutting the Curd. I'm Jessica Kesselman. I'm sharing a very special episode with you today. We're all taking a field trip to Uplands Cheese. Back in October, I, along with some of the HRN team, went to Madison, Wisconsin for the first ever Art of Cheese Festival. It was a weekend organized by the Dairy Farmers of Wisconsin, dedicated to appreciating the state's cheeses and the people who make them. And you may have heard some of my interviews from that festival from the HRN Podcast Lounge. Festival goers also had an opportunity to visit one of the most legendary cheesemakers in our country, Andy Hatch of Uplands Cheese. So our group from HRN went along. Uplands is owned and operated by two families, Andy and Caitlin Hatch and Scott and Leanne America. The farm and creamery produce two of our country's most beloved cheeses, Pleasant Ridge Reserve and Rush Creek Reserve. On this episode, we take you along with us for the visit. You'll hear from Andy and from Liana, who break down the operations from the process of farming to cheesemaking. Uplands Cheese Company is in Dodgeville, in the Driftless area of Southwest Wisconsin. We need to talk about the Driftless area for a minute. The name is a reference to its geological history. This region was not formed by glaciers. For whatever reason, glaciers surrounded but did not cover this land. Hence, it's driftless, absent of the drift, or deposits of rocks and minerals left behind as glaciers receded. Instead, it was formed over tens of thousands of years by rivers and streams. The soil here makes for great pastures for grazing animals, and it's lush with biodiversity. This is the upper Mississippi River Basin. This is where the Wisconsin River and several others enter the Mississippi River and carry whatever happens up here all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. If you're a geology geek who likes metaphors and history like I am, well, all of this is exciting. And it also sounds a little haunting, like the energy in this place is unlike anywhere else in the world. The farm itself is on Pleasant Ridge. It's made up of 500 hilly acres of pasture segmented into paddocks. It was bought back in 1994 by two farmers, Mike Gingrich and Dan Padanod, who founded Uplands Cheese. 
They join their small herds and raise them in a seasonal pasture-based system. Andy Hatch and Scott Merica began as apprentices there before buying the farm from Mike and Dan in 2014. For almost the entire hour's drive west from Madison, we traveled through fog. We could not see the landscape to our left or our right. It was like driving through a tunnel of clouds. But just before reaching the farm, we were suddenly in bright sun and clear skies. And I noticed two things immediately when I got out of the car. The first is the view from the driveway of Uplands Creamery. I couldn't take it all in because the range of visibility didn't even seem possible. It was incredibly expansive. I could just make out the silhouettes of windmills sticking up like little pins from the last visible hill. They were so far away. The second thing was the quiet. There weren't any echoes. Sounds came and dropped, disappeared. I felt very grounded. And I wished it was nighttime because I can only imagine what the night sky looked like from here. We arrived at Uplands just before the rest of the festival tour group at about 9 a.m. And we were greeted by a chorus of mooing cows who were making their way towards the fence along the driveway in growing numbers. They just kept coming, waves of cows, an exciting welcome. Andy and Leanna met our group and split us into two. We'll meet up with Andy later, but we're going to start our tour with Leanna as she tells us about the cows, the pasture, and the milking. Right now we're standing on the home farm, and the home farm is uh, about 300 acres. So we call it the home farm. It's the big chunk that's all together where we all have, they get milked, we live here my husband and my two little boys, and we all live right there in that house. Um, and then Andy lives just over on the, on the other side of the farm. You can kind of see his roof line past the creamery there. Um, and everything in between is pasture. And everything back that way is pasture. And over there is pasture. Um, we have an additional 300 acres that we farm um, sort of adjoining that we do, uh, we use for forage, uh, making hay, uh, corn for corn silage, um, things like that. So uh, we have a farm up here to the north of us um, that you'll pass when you go to Taliesin and you may or may not see on the right-hand side. It's where we keep all of our younger stock, our heifers and our bulls then over there. So <clears throat> we keep them separate. So that way the home farm is completely dedicated towards grazing and milk production. So everybody else is kind of get off until mm -hmm. winter. And then during winter, we bring everybody home and everybody stays here. So, um, so this here, the milking herd right now is 174, I believe. Uh, usually it hovers right just under or just below 200. Um, and they get milked twice a day, uh, 5.30 in the morning and about 4.30 in the afternoon. Um, somebody asked me about breeding. Breeding, we have, um, so it's kind of a rainbow if you look out there, but it's a, I'd say the majority is um, called a, it's a New Zealand Frisian genetics. Um, so it's kind of a lot like a, um, like a small Holstein, basically. Um, it's 
uh, from New Zealand and they, you know, because they do the same sort of style as far of farming that we like to sort of model ourselves after and, and to do is where we have the rotational grazing. So our cows are walking kind of a long distance every day. Um, more than that, like a big Holstein that you would see here in Wisconsin who just goes to a stanch and hangs out and then goes back to a nice sandy stall or what have you. These guys are walking. They're, they're walking when they're not doing this. <clears throat> so, um, and besides that we have, so those would be like the black and white ones that you would see in the, in the black ones. And then we have a lot of jerseys. So those are the cute like, um, when they're babies, they look like little fawns with the big eyelashes and you know, that whole thing. Um, that's the tan <clears throat> sort of light brown. And then there's a lot of like red ones in there, which are kind of my favorite. Those are gonna be your Ayrshire's. We have a, a handful of those. Um, and then there's a few spattered in of a French breed called Montbilliard, <clears throat> but not as many anymore. They're kind of, we're kind of letting those ones go a little bit. So they're a little bit more temperamental. So um, Scott has like a zero tolerance with attitude. So, and he does all the breeding. <laughs> so if they're not, if they're giving him too much attitude, he's like, you're, you're not gonna hang out. So, um, so yeah, um, what else was I gonna? I had a whole spiel before and I lost my place, but uh, so is like this brown one. That's the French. Which this, one? This, this girl one right here, kind of directly in front. She's of She's a jersey. She's a jersey. Yeah, she's a jersey. Oh, okay. Yeah, the mott billiards are kind of speckly. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, but they're all sort of a smaller breed than what you would normally see yeah. here in Wisconsin. Yeah. So, um, we 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 milk for not so much quantity of milk. Like most people would think, we milk we we breed for more components of the milk because it's going towards the cheese. So what's the the fat and protein is really what we're interested in. So not the fluid volume. So is the diversity of the cows affecting the the flavor of the cheese, or like why do you have that? Depends on who you ask. <laughs> That's kind of a loaded question, I think. Uh, some people would say yes, definitely. Um, I think, uh, I kind of side with Scott on this one too, is that it's, it's the diet more than anything. I think most of you will probably figure that out as well, but, um, and their diet is, um, so they, during the grazing season, which we're sort of at the tail end of now, it's all kind of weather dependent. We'll graze from late April, May, depends on when the grass starts growing enough. Um, to you know now or beyond it sort of depends um the pasture that they're on they get moved every day twice a day so wow. kind of with milking um every time they leave that barn they come out onto fresh pasture they get about five mm -hmm. to seven acres a day um kind of split into two so a.m p.m does that make sense um and then the grass that they're on it's it's a mixture of um like Timothy grass, brome grass, um, there's oats, there's alfalfa, there's, I mean, there's a ton of, it's different like orchard grass, there's a lot of different grass in there. So um, they, they have a wide variety. And then there's all the stuff that we don't plant in there, you know. The only thing they don't eat is the thistles and the, um, the foxtail barley, which is our personal enemy, so um, yeah. But otherwise, they get a they get a wide variety, and then they they do get about five pounds of grain per um, milking. So, um, but that's it. That's the only grain. Um, 
And let's see, we calve in, so we're a seasonal herd, which means that we calve in one time a year, all at once. So our entire herd, so all 174 of these girls, plus all of the bred heifers that you don't see here, that it will be their first uh, calving season. They're up at the different farm. They will all calve in uh, at the same time in at about a 60 day window. So for us on the farm, um, that's like our just insanely busy time of year. And it's usually in March, which I don't know, for those of you that live in Wisconsin, March, in Wisconsin is, it's like the fifth season of mud season. Yeah. It's particularly um, interesting. So that's how we calve in everybody. Um, so we're looking at probably calving in about, oh, I don't know, maybe 225 around there this spring. So um, and we have uh, Scott, myself, our two boys help. I mean, they're seven and eight, so, you know. Um, and then we have three guys on the farm and everybody kind of works during that time. So, um, and then with the calves, we keep about 50 heifer calves. So the female calves will keep about 50 just as replacement stock for our own herd because we are a closed herd. So we don't ever buy in um, live, like living cattle. So, um, and then we keep about 10 bulls or so, which is kind of 10 too many, but like, um, yeah, cause they're pretty dangerous. Yeah, it's some, I think we're doing less and less and less now. And they are at a different farm. There are no bulls here on this home farm. Um, they, we like having our kids here out and about, helping out, doing things, and you just can't have them out and doing stuff. Like, um, Scott's had a few very close calls and it's just, it's just too scary. So it takes two hour, around two hours to milk. We have a, um, so we milk everybody in that barn, in the, in the lower part of that big barn there. So what we have is a parlor. And so there's, there's usually two classic ways to milk. There's either a parlor or a stanchion, at least around here. Uh, stanchions are where you kind of have the stalls that you go into, you have to bend down. Uh, the parlor, which we have is you kind of, you walk down the steps into like, it's called the pit. It's basically just like a sunken uh, hallway and you're in between the two cows. So the cow's udders are kind of at, at this level for me anyways. Um, and then you have 16 units. Uh, what we have is it's called a swing 16. So you can do uh, 16 <clears throat> per side, but only one side at a time. So you do one side and you kind of, as they come off, you're flipping it over to the other side and then letting the one go, if that makes sense. So um, that whole process takes about two hours to answer your question. They get all that time before they're being milked. They kind of hang out in the feedlot. They're drinking water because we do not have water in these fields outside of um, our irrigation, which is kind of put away right now. Um, we have these cool pods that we irrigate the front half of the farm with. Um, and when it's really hot, we will put tanks out and we'll run um, the the irrigation line into the tanks for the cows so they can have water in the pasture. But generally they do fine without it. They come in twice, they load up and then they are out. And the, and the grass honestly has a, it's like a ton of water in it. So um, yeah, so two hours milking, hanging out, drinking, and then they just, they get kicked out to whatever paddock they're in. Right now, today, they hardly had to walk at all. They just walked from there to here. Basically just crossed the driveway. Um, 
kind of behind our house is where they cross. And then they walk as far as from Andy's house, there's pastures all around his house, and they'll walk from there to the barn. And that can take, I mean, those milking days, those are the days when you have to start earlier because you know it's going to take them at least a half an hour to walk up to the barn. So you're just following them for, you know, the long walk over. So, which is really nice when it's a day like today, it's, it's awesome. Um, when it's, you know, not so nice, it's not as nice, but. Uh, and we learned they stay outside all weather. They do, yeah. We do not have housing for our cows uh, currently. We're kind of toying with the idea of like feed pads and things like that, but it's more just to manage uh, inclement weather. It wouldn't be a regular thing. They're outside. 24-7, unless they're being milked. And so even when it's really, really cold, yes. they don't have like wind, little lean-tos or anything? No, but uh, we're pretty mindful of the weather. So if we know that there's a really bad cold snap coming or yeah. crazy wind or whatever, um, then, um, and it gets windy here yeah, up on the yeah. ridge. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we have certain paddocks that are really well suited towards, uh, like we have, we have a lot of woods uh, as well. So we'll kind of tuck them down in the tree lines yeah. down and, and they can kind of get out of it that way. If it's really bad, we'll even go so far as to stack up hay bales and make an actual break for them um, or put them behind the silage bags that you might, you might be able to see over there. They look like gigantic, long white caterpillars made out of um, like white plastic. We have uh, silage in there for them for the winter, that's their winter feed. And a lot of times, you know, we've put that along the driveway in certain areas and they can tuck behind that too. So, you know, you kind of have to get creative, but generally speaking, if it's really cold, if you put enough feed in front of them, they stay warm. Like it's actually pretty unbelievable. They create so much body heat. Um, and during the winter, we, I'd say we probably feed around six round bales per day. And each round bale is probably I mean, anywhere from like 1,100 to 13, 1,400 pounds. I mean, they're, they're big. Um, so they stay full. If they stay full and they stay ruminating and, and their rumen's working, they're creating heat from inside out. I think probably the most challenging thing would, for other farms, it would be, you know, the milk market's pretty tough, but we create our own milk market. So that's kind of unique to us. Honestly, I think it would have to be, um, this doesn't sound crazy, but it's kind of the mentality of farmers and more of a mental health uh, leaning, to be honest. Um, so many, especially with like the old time, old timer farmers uh, in this area and probably many others, um, the, the whole concept of if you're not suffering, you're not working hard enough. Oh, yeah. And so there's a real sort of identity uh, sort of it's just a different sort of identity of having a farm like this we're so incredibly lucky because we are able to live such a really nice lifestyle we're able to create our own milk market we're able to have family time with and 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 take days off in the winter when we dry off all of our cows and stop milking for two months when other farms aren't doing that and then sometimes that can kind of mess with you I think from the farming standpoint because your peers are not doing that right and so it's like um is is it being judged are you being judged in a because you're does that make sense kind of yeah, yeah i don't know it's so it's it's just a um otherwise you know weather obviously would be the biggest challenge i mean the biggest like clear challenge 
So yeah, weather is tough, but it's also great. Like we had a drought this year and that was pretty, pretty, uh, pretty rough. Yeah, uh, so we irrigate this front half. Uh, so that stayed green, but it was, I mean, it was barely. Um, and then, oops, sorry. And then um, the, ba the entire back half of our farm, which you can't really see. In fact, if you guys wanted to walk up to that cotton tr cottonwood tree, it's a fantastic, it's a beautiful view back there. It's the rest of our farm back there. Um, it was brown. I mean, it was like, it looked like, uh, it looked like California. It, it was brown. So um, that was rough. It bounced back. We're gonna, we're not done seeing it yet. I'm sure like the hay, we couldn't get off. We usually get like about four um, <clears throat> cuts for hay. We got one and a half. So uh, we're gonna be feeling that this winter for sure. And hay is gonna be really expensive. So we're gonna, you know, it's stuff like that. Challenges, you know, mm -hmm. so you can't really, um, what are you gonna do? <laughs> you know, it luckily it started raining and it bounced back and it looks great. And I think we're, you know, we're in an okay spot now, but um, we have a lot of silage too. So that's gonna help out a lot, but yeah, it's farming. You just, yeah. I mean, you just, it's, it is what it is. So, but we're really lucky cause you know, we have the cheese plant as part of our business as, as the, a, the main part of our business. So we're a kind of a different beast than a regular, you know, dairy farm. We'll return to this episode after a word from our sponsor. This episode is supported by HRN business member, Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX. Chemists in the Kitchen is a YouTube video series by LabX, spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through topics like making your own pickles, the chemistry behind ceviche, and much, much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality, with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your own kitchen. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Subscribe on YouTube to watch the entire series for free. Chemist in the Kitchen by LabX is a program of the National Academy of Sciences and supports HRN's creative educational reporting and storytelling that drive conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. Welcome back to Cutting the Curd. Let's rejoin our visit to Upland's Cheese Company. We thanked Leanna said goodbye to the cows, and headed to the creamery to meet Andy. We gathered in the outer room around a table with wedges of Pleasant Ridge Reserve plated on cheese boards. At the far end of the room, through the windows of the swinging doors to the make room, we could see four people standing around a table, surrounded by racks of small white rounds of cheese. Now remember, this was the last weekend of September, the beginning of October. These were some of the first wheels of Rush Creek Reserve of the season, which is made when the cow's diet starts to change from a diet of summer pasture towards winter hay. The people handling the cheeses were wrapping the wheels with bands of spruce bark. This step in the process leads to more flavor development as the spruce bark lends a woodsy flavor and it also helps the cheese hold its shape as it ripens. Andy starts to tell us about his philosophy of cheesemaking and the production process. Our goal as, as cheesemakers is to make cheese that tastes like our farm. 
and which may sound like kind of throwaway uh, brochure copy, but really it is sort of our competitive strategy. Uh, we're very small uh, cheese company. We use just the milk from our own cows. You'll see it's you know me plus half a dozen people in there. We uh, this is you know we make about ten thousand of these a year. It's a hundred thousand pounds of cheese. The big cheese companies around here make that in a day. So we are never going to compete in the cheese market on uh, scale or price or you know marketing budget. Uh, so how do you survive in in that in those circumstances? Well, you make something that nobody else can make. You try to you know create a category of one. And so in terms of cheese making, how do you do that? Uh, well, this is really now our you know mantra or our, our, our philosophy as, as cheese makers. We use only the milk from our own cows and we only make cheese while they're on pasture or eating homegrown feed. And we use unpasteurized milk and we age it with a natural rind. So seasonal milk from one herd, unpasteurized milk, natural rind. That approach to cheese making is always going to give you cheese that tastes more like the place it came from, the land of the animals. Uh, the opposite approach, which is to say better or worse, but uh, you know, if you're making cheese to sh sell Domino's and melt on pizza, you buy milk from lots of different farms, you pasteurize it, and you either don't age it at all or you age it in a vacuum sealed bag. Uh, all of those techniques are going to give you cheese that's more consistent, homogenous, scalable, cheaper. Um, and you know, we all want a cheap slice of pizza that has its place. We're coming at it from, from the opposite side. We basically do everything as expensively and inefficiently as we can. <laughs> and, you know, uh, not for like, the nostalgia of it, because it is the old-fashioned way of doing it, but simply to make something that, that is distinctive and, and tastes like our farm. Um, and so, uh, I'll kind of talk you through our, our calendar year here. I think that's the best way for you to understand um, how we go about it. Uh, so we are a seasonal farm, and Leon will talk a little bit about that, but all of our cows calve in the spring at the same time, and thus start milking in time with the pastures. Uh, so they're calving out in the fields, they're being fed hay while they're calving, and as the grass starts to grow in April, they'll eat less hay, more grass, less hay, more grass. Eventually they'll just ignore the hay altogether and be on all pasture, and that's the day well, we'll wait a few days after that. And that's when we start making cheese. So this year was May 17th. It was a late spring year. Often it's, you know, May 1st, May 5th. Earliest ever was April 12th. Once we start making cheese and the cows are on pasture, we make this cheese, Pleasant Ridge Reserve, like 200 days in a row, as long as the pasture holds out. Um, same cheese, only one cheese every day. It is basically a big harvest of all that pasture, which we're distilling down into the flavor of the cheese. And I'll, I'll talk about that when we taste it. Um, and as we come into the fall, where we are now, and grass growth starts to wane, we have to supplement um, pasture with, with hay, that transition to the winter diet, we start making our little soft cheese called Rush Creek Reserve. And I'm going to take you over the windows, and you'll um, see us working with that cheese in there. Um, that's made in the fall and sold over the holidays only, November and December. The first batches aren't ripe yet, so I'll see photos of it. Uh, but I don't have any to taste. 
Uh, it will be out soon. Halloween will come out. Um, and then as we come into the holidays, we'll, we stop making cheese and dry all our cows off um, around Christmas. And don't melt them through the winter. Don't make cheese during the winter. We sort of shut down and hibernate for a couple of months. Um, so, I mean, that kind of overview of the calendar year shows you, you know, kind of our, like I said, our aim here is, is to harvest all that summer grass and, you know, distill it and send it out into the world as something that tastes like our farm. Um, I'll keep talking about that, but I think it's a good time to pass around that tray, we would. We each take a piece of Pleasant Ridge Reserve from the board, and Andy guides us through a tasting, a sensory analysis of sorts. First thing you want to do is look at it. Uh, what do you notice when you look at it? Beautiful yellow. Yellow? Yeah. Right. I mean, this is white. This is not white, right? Uh, that's your first sign that it came off of pastured milk, right? Uh, and when you smell it, what do you, what do you smell? Grassy. Grassy. Yeah. Grassy. Yeah, there is a body part, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. A little sweet. Buttery. Buttery. Yeah. Also, um, it's darker near the rind. Darker near the rind, a little drier. Yeah. Uh, the best way to taste cheese is always to taste a, a radius, um, which is what you have cut here, so you can nibble from the inside all the way up under the rind, and you'll see when you when you do that, the flavor changes, the texture changes as you get closer to the rind. Um, so this cheese is a decent temperature, but if it, if it is still chilly, you can work it between your fingers a little bit. Now we're getting fussy, but if you're actually like evaluating cheese, this will tell you something about the texture, is it greasy, is it mealy? It helps just warm it up. And then similarly in your mouth. Keep it in your mouth for a bit, let it warm up. Um, how many people have this is the first time they've had our cheese? Great. Cool. Remind you of anything? <laughs> the idea of it. Yeah. They make one, yes, yeah. and they also make one thing. Yes. Yeah. So some of like those like French Alpine like gold or like yeah. So we gave this cheese uh, its own name, Pleasant Ridge Reserve. If you're up on basically the western brow of, of Pleasant Ridge here, it's, it stretches back that way. Um, it's modeled after those Alpine cheeses like Gruyere and Beaufort, but to the point I made at the beginning, rather than try to copy Gruyere and call it Gruyere, we wanted to make something that tastes like our farm, so we named it after the landscape. Um, Pleasant Ridge is the, the highest spot around, as you can see. Uh, we're like at 1,300 feet. Um, so we're going to drive um, north to get to Taliesin, right on the river. So everything this side heading north gets to the Gulf of Mexico by the Wisconsin, and then 80 miles to the Mississippi, and then down to the Gulf. Everything down this way gets to the Mississippi via the Sugar River, and then Pecatonica, down through Galena, and anyway. It's a special, it's an unusual piece of land. Um, 
Pleasant Ridge. We're on the north rim of Governor Dodge State Park. Have anybody ever been in there? There's a big, famous state park right here, 6,000 acres. Uh, we have, you know, 100-foot cliffs here. Not a great place to um, grow corn and beans. Our hills are pretty steep here. Um, and the immigrants who settled this, Norwegians, when we bought the farm, we got all the old, you know, legal paperwork. And it changed hands like every 30 or 40 years. It was difficult to scratch out a living up here. But I think this landscape, these hills, uh, really found their purpose when it was planted to perennial pasture. Um, you know, we are, this landscape is very good at growing grass. Um, and there are a couple of reasons that's important for this farm. Um, and I'll leave maybe the details of Liana, but in case she skips it. You know, uh, there's a lot of talk these days about um, the carbon impact of, well, everything. And agriculture is <laughs> going to have to answer uh, for their impact as well as any other industry. Uh, perennial pasture sequesters carbon, right? When you till soil, you break up that carbon structure, release it into the air. Um, there are a lot of environmental benefits associated with perennial pasture. You know, better water retention, less erosion, carbon sequestration, so better for water quality. When you till these hills, I mean, they basically wrote the book on soil erosion in southwest Wisconsin. You plow these hills, and a big April rain comes down to Rush Creek, which is what drains Pleasant Ridge into the Wisconsin. That's how you have the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, right? All those phosphorus and nitrogen fertilizer makes its way all the way down. So for environmental reasons, keeping these hills in grass is, is, is a big deal. The second leg of the three-legged stool is, you know, animals are, of course, cows are evolved to be outside eating grass, not standing on concrete eating grain, better for the cow. The, the third leg of the stool and what we're, you know, what makes this work financially is the flavor from grass-fed milk. Um, if we made this cheese in uh, January, it would not look, smell, or taste like this. Um, and, you know, what we're after, you know, yes, taste of place, but, you know, flavor complexity. So, um, we all love things that are sweet and salty and fatty, right? And so you see, there's a lot of cheese out there that's you know, tastes like a butterscotch toffee, you know, yes, it's good for a bite or two. I mean, the first sip of Coca-Cola is not bad either, but it's not very interesting. Um, what, what we're after and what you should find in any, you know, well-made aged raw milk cheese is, is complexity and richness and length. So in a cheese like this, you have, you know, savoriness, right? It's almost like a meaty chicken broth, beef broth kind of uh, and you have sweetness. That interplay between savory and, and sweet is what makes, you know, aged raw milk cheese worth the price, honestly. It's, you can't fake that kind of richness with uh, pasteurized milk and, and starter cultures. Um, cheese making is fermentation, you know, like making beer, wine, or kimchi, and, you know, what does the fermenting microbes bacteria. Um, when you pasteurize milk, you, you kill all the bacteria and you would add starter cultures, two, three strains out of a pouch, you know, manufactured in a lab, and add it to, 
you know, inert or dead milk, they're going to behave in predictable ways and you know, give you ideally a consistent product. Domino's pizza cheese, the same every single time. Um, so what, what becomes, cheese is basically a clump of fat and protein. And what becomes flavor is those fats and proteins having been broken down into fatty acids, amino acids. What's doing that? Well, microbes. So if you only have two or three strains added to pasteurized milk, they're going to develop aroma and flavor in a pretty limited way. When you have unpasteurized milk, you have several you know, dozens of species of microbes. They're breaking down fats and proteins in a multiplicity of ways that's going to generate more different types of flavor and aroma. Basically, you just have more tools in the toolbox, more microbes, more flavor. Um, I mean, I think that, that there's consensus on that in the cheese industry, and you know, a thousand years of R&D proving that. Why do most modern cheese producers pasteurize? Uh, for food safety reasons. Um, when you, uh, you know, pasteurize milk, you kill any potential pathogens, E. coli, salmonella, listeria, uh, which is a very real concern. And if we were running a cheese factory that bought milk from uh, multiple different farms, I would pasteurize the milk too. I really, you know, you have to have a high degree of confidence in the cleanliness of your milk, and you have to spend a lot of money uh, verifying that cleanliness in order to make safe raw milk cheese. Um, it's been done for a thousand years. We have, you know, a, a track record of doing it. It's not a, it's not an unmanageable situation. So we, we test uh, the milk every single day. We test every single batch of cheese multiple times to, to manage that risk. Um, I will say uh, that uh, drinking fluid raw milk and making raw milk cheese are two entirely different things. And sometimes the media conflates those things and makes it confusing, but cheese making is meant to take uh, you know, a substance that, that's going to spoil and, and preserve it. I mean, it is meant to protect cheese, the, the, the milk. So the, the risk profile between those two products are entirely different, should, should be regulated differently, and they are. Um, yeah. How long has it aged for it? How do you do the rind, like the natural rind? Yes. So uh, this cheese was made um, July 30th of last year. So we uh, make cheese all summer. We'll make about 80 of these a day tuck them away, the back side of the building, I'm afraid we're too big of a group to go back in there, uh, is full of, right now, about 12,000 of these. It's like a library. We would fill this room maybe three times, four times, aisles and aisles and rows of, of cheese. Um, basically, it's a, a history of the season. Each rack, a rack about this size, will hold you know, July 30 from last year. August 1st, August 2nd, August 3rd. And anything we make in one calendar year is sold the following year. So roughly speaking, we age it about a year before we sell it. Uh, if we tasted uh, this cheese made you know, two months ago, it would be pretty boring. It takes time, like aging a red wine. This is the work of you know, microbes, whether they're coming from commercial starter culture or the raw milk. It takes time to break down fats and proteins, create flavor. So, 
you'll find our cheese in the market. You know, we only make it about six months a year and sell it 12 months a year. So there's an age range. It's out there between you know, 10 and 14 months is the most common age. Um, we will age some batches out to like two years plus and sell those as extra aged Pleasant Ridge Reserve. Pretty limited. You can buy them on, on our website in the fall um, over the holidays. So the cheese is made and the day after it's made it's sort of ivory golden and very soft. You could poke your finger right through it. And we bring it into the first cheesecake, we call it ripening room, and we coat every wheel in dry salt. And the next day, eight plus two, we call it. So it's made on a Monday. Tuesday it gets covered in dry salt. Wednesday, dry salt again. Thursday, four or five days, it's covered in dry salt. And on the um, sixth day, wash the salt off and start brushing the rind in salt water. Every wheel will get brushed every day for like the first two weeks. So basically, so the salt is doing two things. One, it's getting sucked into the cheese just through osmotic pressure. And you need salt in cheese as a preservative and a flavoring. But it's just toughening up the skin of the cheese. So there's nothing artificial on this. This is just dried out cheese. I mean, if you packed your bare hand in salt, it would toughen up too. And then the brushing is also helping form a physical rind. But the rind itself, just like the raw milk, hosts microbes that are going to transform the cheese. So when you age cheese in a vacuum seal bag, the way you know most most people do, you uh, aren't allowing you know microbes that would live on the rind to go to work on your cheese and, and create flavor. So similar to using raw milk, aging with a natural rind gives you access to more flavor complexity. It comes with an enormous amount of labor. So it's brushed by hand every day for the first two weeks after having been salted by hand for a week. And then once the rind is pretty well formed, we'll go to brushing it every other week. And then by the time it's two or three months old, once a week. But once a week, every week for a year. So you'll walk into a room like this full of you know racks. It's like a library, racks and racks of aisles of cheese. You'll have a little cart with a bucket of brine and a rag. Pull down a wheel, wipe it, turn it, put it back. Take the next wheel, wipe it, turn it, put it back. And, you know, our best guys will do 2,000, maybe 2,500 wheels in a day. Um, and keep in mind, we're very small. So all the Gruyere and Ponte, you know, cheese at this scale or up in Europe is all being done by robots. And um, honestly, it's the kind of work that could and should be done by a robot. We all have tendonitis and blown elbows, and um, someday maybe we will have a robot. But um, that is how cheese like this gets expensive. And like I said early on, we don't do it this way because it's like old-fashioned. There has to be, you know, it creates flavor that creates value that can pay for all that flavor. But it's bonkers. I, if you make a cheese, you know, 40 pound block of cheddar, vacuum seal it, and you stick it in cold storage somewhere, that's how you get five, 10 year cheddar. Nobody has to touch that cheese. Pallet cheese, 32 degree cooler. It costs you about a penny a pound a month to age it. That's the cost to rent a pallet slot in cold storage. It costs us about 30 cents a pound a month to do the way we do it. Why, it's why cheese gets expensive, but it's also why it's delicious. 
That's also why there's so few people do it. Um, and, you know, it, it's just a, a crazy amount of um, very difficult labor. We like to say, I mean, we have a couple guys who do it. You either have a lot going on upstairs or very little to enjoy that job. We've had people learn foreign languages, you know, listen to books, all that, or, or just space out. If you look in there, I won't, I'm not profiling them, but we have a, a bunch of moms who are like, yes, like put me in a quiet room. <laughs> like my, my phone doesn't ring in there. It's just you and the cheese for a couple hours. It's, it's pretty nice. Do you ever see, like, uh, in the future, a world in which an operation of this scale would be able to have, like, more assistance with robots, like brushing and that sort of stuff? Do you think there's, like, an economy that yeah. that would work? Yes, it's called Italy. <laughs> in France. I mean, their labor is so expensive, they've automated at this scale for years. And actually, if you'd all like to turn around, you're looking at our very first piece of automated equipment ever. That is a French machine to wrap Rush Creek. Um, and we have plans to someday, you know, build a new building with cheese caves that could accommodate a robot. The robot's half a million bucks. For a business our size, you know, that's probably untenable for now. But um, to grow, yes. And, you know, my way of thinking about it, uh, you know, there are some quality touch points that you want, you need a human doing, but packaging cheese or turning and brushing it, I think, are not those, not those points. So, um, we have never been able to make enough Rush Creek, I'll talk about this cheese in a minute, this little soft cheese, to meet demand, and the biggest pain point is wrapping by hand. So you're going to see them banding, wrapping bark around the spruce. As soon as they're done with that, they're going to start wrapping cheese in paper. You know, uh, like 50,000 of them we need to do in like six weeks. We call it the, I'm not, I love moms, I'm married to a wonderful, we call them the mom brigade. They drop the kids off at school, they come in here and, and stand, 10 of them all day, and their wrists are in their shoulders. Anyway, that machine, a good lady in there will do 60 cheeses an hour. We'll have you know, six, seven of them. That that machine will do twenty five hundred an hour. And Andy's um, gotten so desperate in the past that like, he's allowed me to come up with messages. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's always a disaster. Um, <laughs> so it's it's going to allow. Uh, it's not going to replace workers. It's going to allow those workers to spend more time managing the cheese as it ages, like doing things that impact the quality, not simply packaging. We hope you enjoyed this visit to Upland's Cheese in Dodgeville, Wisconsin. May you carry a bit of what you heard with you the next time you eat a piece of Pleasant Ridge Reserve. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jessica Kesselman. This episode was produced by H. Conley and engineered by Armin Spengen. Cutting the Curd is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.